Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a, name, a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and, the, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and he raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa that many and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. May God bless the reading of his word. Now let's turn our time over to Minister Jeff. Good morning, Crossbridge. Do you believe in miracles? Some of you remember that question at the end of the 1980 Winter Olympics hockey game between the USA and the Soviets because you watched it. There's some of you probably know it because you watched Disney's uh, Miracle on Ice, the movie. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about because you weren't born yet during the game or the movie, then I don't know, I guess just watch it on Disney Plus between watching episodes of Falcon and Winter Soldier. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. Al Michaels shouted that question and answer um, in the closing seconds of that Olympic hockey game when the U.S. sealed their win over the heavily favored Soviets. One of the most iconic moments and wins in U.S. sports. They call it the miracle on ice. Today's passage has nothing to do with hockey, but it does have something to do with miracles. And so that famous question, which is actually more a statement when you think about the context. Well, it popped up into my mind as I was going through reading through today's passage. Yeah, there are two unbelievable, unbelievable miracles in our passage, but really what it does is it points us to the power of the one behind these miracles, God. Our passage this morning is a short one, and if we're reading, we might quickly pass over it because it's sandwiched between two really important events. We have the conversion of Saul at the beginning of Acts 9, and in the next chapter, Acts 10, uh, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. That's where Peter gets that vision of all kinds of animals parachuting down, and God says, eat. God has made it clean. Uh, the Gentiles can be part of the people of God without submitting to dietary restrictions. That's what the vision means. It, and we love that because for us, that means we can eat pork belly during Korean barbecue. We can go to Chinatown to get some roast pork or, or row 34 for those warm buttered lobster rolls. 
so good. So anyways, you, you have two really important passages that get referenced all the time. And in between, there's 12 verses that really seem insignificant. As if all it does, it helps us to move from point A to point B. And in part, that's what it does. Luke includes it here and it it helps us to bring the focus back to Peter because we've been reading about Stephen, Philip, and Saul. And it moves the narrative forward. It sets up for Peter's encounter with Cornelius. But God speaking to us through this passage, even though it's short, still has a lot to teach us. There's two miracles that happens in our passage. And, and I think we have to ask, why does Luke include these two miracles here? What is his purpose? His intent? What, what, what does the healing of Aeneas and the restoration of Tabitha do? And I, I think from our passage, it does at least three things. First, it demonstrates that Jesus has power over disability and disease. Verses 32 to 35. Our passage begins refocusing our attention on Peter. He's been going here and there among them all, meaning he's been going around preaching and teaching the gospel, bringing the gospel to those who haven't heard it, and probably even helping the ones who already believe continue to mature. So it's not only missional, but it's actually really pastoral of Peter. And, And here he comes down to the saints who lived at Lydda. You can see on this map the, the orange line, and that's the route that Peter takes to get from Jerusalem to, to Lydda. Remember, he had just gone to Samaria up in the north. He had heard they had received the gospel, and he came back preaching the gospel to many Samaritan villages. Now he's heading west. He ends up at the city, and there he encounters a man named Aeneas. And Luke describes him as being bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed. We don't know what caused the paralysis. Maybe, maybe there was some disease or maybe he had a stroke or maybe he fell from a rooftop and had an accident. We, we just don't know. But whatever the cause was, the outcome was pretty serious. Eight years paralyzed. Think of how his muscles must have atrophied being bedridden for that long. Imagine how difficult it must have been for a guy who is disabled to live his life in the first century. He would need others to help him, maybe even to flip him once in a while to keep the blood flowing so he doesn't have any bed sores. Think of the last long flight or road trip you took, which, you know, granted, might have been a while. But remember how good it felt to just stretch afterwards, having sat in that seat for hours. Now imagine not being able to do that for eight years. Aeneas is here, lying in his bed, paralyzed. Peter arrives and says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Man, the the boldness of what Peter is saying to this paralyzed man. Jesus Christ heals you. That's a present tense. Not Jesus healed you in the past. Not let me pray for you that Jesus will heal you in the future. But in this very moment, as I am speaking, as you are lying there, Jesus Christ is healing you. And in the statement, by the statement, Peter points all of that power back to Christ. He's the agent. 
He is the means. He's been given this power, this gift. Now, now Peter is not ultimately the one healing Aeneas. It's Jesus. He's the one who has power over disease and disability. And right after Peter says this, he says a, a second thing. He instructs Aeneas to rise and make his bed. That's a second bold statement that he says, get up, get out of your bed, stop lying there and rise up and make your bed. You you see, for Aeneas to make his bed, it's a really compelling way to show that he's been healed. Yeah, I mean, like if if Aeneas rises, he walks around and yeah, it's clear he's been healed and and that's great. And he hasn't done that in eight years, so that's incredible. That's a miracle. But the making of the bed, I think, is a statement. It's a natural consequence of the miracle. He can make his own bed now. He can spread his own mat on the floor. He doesn't need help to do that. Maybe it's as if you're playing basketball or frisbee and you break a leg and you're in a cast for months. You use a wheelchair to get around or crutches. And once you're fully healed, you will walk around and people will see you and know you're better. But But if they see you back on the court, back at the Lexington Fields playing basketball and frisbee, well, that really makes a statement. Peter says these few words, and it begins with this indicative, this statement of what is happening. Jesus Christ heals you. And then it follows up with an imperative, this command, therefore get up, make your bed. The first leads to the second. Aeneas doesn't get to rising and making his bed without Jesus Christ first healing him. And so here Peter gives the indicative first. Jesus Christ heals you. He has power over your paralysis. Therefore, rise and get up. Look what happens. Immediately, the text says Aeneas rose. It's a miracle. The healing is instant. He was paralyzed for eight years, and now he's not. So the first thing these miracles demonstrate is that Jesus has power over disease and disability. And the second thing that it demonstrates is that Jesus has power over death. Verses 36 to 43. Peter ends up being asked to come to Joppa. Now, Some of you should be familiar with Joppa. That's where prophets flee to when they're running away from God. And by prophets, I'm talking about Jonah. Now, you can see on the map the green line again. Uh, That's Peter now traveling to Joppa from Lydda. It's not too far. It's about half a day's journey. It's a three-hour walk, 10 to 12 miles. He goes there because there in Joppa is a disciple named Tabitha. Now, she's probably someone really special. In Greek, in the entire Bible, this is the only place where the feminine version of the word disciple is used. So she is singled out. She is a female disciple, someone who has made a huge impact. Luke describes her as someone full of good works and acts of charity. She's someone who continually did these things. They filled up her life. And the charity probably also included caring for the widows, the same ones that were there weeping after she died. These are the widows who are even probably wearing these clothes and tunics that Tabitha had made for them. 
Tabitha meant a lot to them. No, no doubt she was a, a follower of Jesus who made a huge impact on the people around her. And now that she's passed, it's a huge loss. So the disciples in Joppa, they send for Peter and they urge him, please come to us without delay. Peter obliges and, and goes and by now, you know, Tabitha has already passed. They washed her body and prepared it probably for burial and they laid her in the upper room. Maybe they have hope that she'll be brought back or maybe they just want to see what happens, uh, you know, when they go to Peter. What Peter will say, well, he arrives and he does five things. First, he, he makes everyone go outside, just like Jesus did when he brought Jairus' daughter back to life. You know, unlike all the televangelists where everything is publicized and on TV, here it's a very private matter. Not showboating or anything like that. And second, he kneels down. He shows his submission to God and then, then he prays. After he turns to the body. And lastly, he says, Tabitha, rise. And this is just as incredible when you think about it. Even more than telling the paralyzed man to rise, he's telling a corpse to rise. And that's exactly what happens, except she's not a corpse anymore. This isn't the walking dead. She, she opens up her eyes, she sits up and then gets up. And calling all the saints and widows, Peter presents her alive. They see that she is alive. Now, as he's doing all this, he doesn't specifically say Jesus' name. But there are many echoes to Jesus' own miracles during his ministry. We think of Mark 5, where Jesus raises a family's daughter from the dead. And very similarly, he takes her hand and says to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. It's already been established from this passage that Peter only has this gift, this power, because the Holy Spirit gave it to him. This power is really Jesus' power over death. And in both cases, we see this, these amazing miracles of healing and restoration. Both of these miracles in this short passage demonstrate the power of Christ to make the lame walk and the dead rise. Why else, though, does Luke include this passage? What purpose does it serve? And I think this is the third thing that this passage demonstrates. That Jesus' power to heal opens the door for Jesus' power to save. What happens when Aeneas is healed and Tabitha is restored? Both passages follow a very similar outline when you look at it. And both end with what happens among the people. How do they respond? Verse 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Verse 42, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And so at the end of each miracle, you have countless people who either see the miracle with their eyes, they see the person who is healed, or raised, and, or they hear about it. It becomes known to them and it leads them. It helps them, it guides them. It enables them to, to turn to the Lord, to believe. It leads them to put their faith in Jesus. Jesus' power to heal opens the door for Jesus' power to save. How though, specifically? 
in part, I think what Luke is doing here is he is again using the miracles to show that they confirm the message. They authenticate and legitimize what Peter is preaching. And it matters immensely in this section because it's going to help when Peter goes to Caesarea, to Cornelius, to the Gentiles, and he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then the Gentiles believe and they receive the Holy Spirit and Peter continues, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Let's be certain here that as we go through this passage that Miracles are not the cause of faith. That's not what is being taught in this passage. That's not Luke's emphasis. Jesus' power is demonstrated through Aeneas and Tabitha, but his power is also demonstrated through these people coming to faith. There's the power of Jesus to work miracles. There's the power of Jesus for conversions and and church growth. Miracles don't automatically make non-believers believers, but I'm sure it helps, you know. John writes in his gospel that now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So even though they saw the signs and believed, he knew that their faith wasn't quite genuine. Likewise, later, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, at the same time, in this passage, miracles do help to lend credence to the message. I mean, imagine Peter is preaching about God raising Jesus Christ from the dead. There is forgiveness of sins to all who believe, including the Gentiles. And then you see a miracle where Peter invokes Jesus' name to make a lame man walk and later on a dead girl live. For the early readers, it meant they could trust the Peter who received the vision in chapter 10 because it was the same Peter who by Jesus' name and power did all these amazing things. Craig Keener, who uh, he's a New Testament scholar, he writes this. The healing of people paralyzed or unable to walk also features prominently in many modern accounts of God's activity and especially frequently in the majority world to people living outside of America. And he continues, including evangelism modeled after methods and acts. He, he brings up one story where a Christian doctor sees that his North Indian patient's legs are paralyzed in a permanently sitting position and completely inoperable. And so this Christian doctor simply prayed for him. And the man was instantly healed. He cites another account from Nepal of a 20-year-old woman named Janita who was paralyzed from birth. Her parents had taken her to doctors. Her parents had even offered sacrifices to the Hindu gods for her healing. And one of the pastors there visited her in her home. And this pastor, she shared the gospel with her and prayed for her. And the next week, this young woman walked to church. 
Keener has a whole book on this. And in one of the accounts, one of the Ethiopian church leaders says of these healings and miracles, uh, you know, he's surprised at all this attention from these Westerners about these miraculous occurrences. And his response is, yeah, this is kind of the norm around here. It's pretty usual. For those of us who live in our Western secular culture, influenced by David Hume and the like, there, there's a tendency to rule out anything that might be supernatural. Even maybe for some of us who are believers. We might look at some of these occurrences as a misdiagnosis or a coincidence or reduce it all to these things. And, and maybe, and, and probably in some of these cases, it, it is just like that. But probably not every case. And definitely, certainly not what is being presented here in Acts 9. Otherwise, what's worse is that we end up demythologizing the, the Bible. That, that is, we remove all miraculous components of the biblical narrative. We do what Thomas Jefferson did. He, he took the New Testament, a razor, some glue, and he cut and pasted certain sections and left out anything miraculous. And what we, he ended up with was what he called the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Or, you know, what we call the Jefferson Bible. And what was missing was the gospel. No miracles, no resurrection, nothing that pointed to Jesus as the divine Son of God. Our, our passage today is a reminder that there's power in Jesus' name. Power over disease, over disability, over death. And Jesus is at work to unfold his plan of salvation, whether through natural means and even supernatural means. And the power that healed Aeneas and raised Tabitha is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that has been given to us to fulfill his commission. Now, we may not personally witness any of these miracles, but that's not primarily Luke's focus here. The focus, like his entire gospel, is on Jesus. He has the power to heal and the power to save. I think normally we, we'd come to a passage like this and we, we'd want to personalize the healings and miracles because you know, the reality is we're living in a world marred by the effects of sin. Even for me, right, with scoliosis and a broken back, I, I think it would be awesome if God would come and just miraculously heal my back. And so I'm a little bit taller now and we have to adjust the camera for that and I have to get new clothes. And basically all that would point all of you to the power of Christ to heal and to save. Now, if he doesn't, praise God. If he does, praise God all the more. But this particular passage is not necessarily prescribing to all of us that if we are paralyzed, that we will be able to walk again, at least in, um, in this life. These miracles, signs, and wonders serve to point us to Christ and the gospel message. There is hope, though. The gospel message is also about God and his kingdom. And so oftentimes we ask, well, will God heal me? Will God heal you? And I think the answer that, that the Bible gives us is yes. But it's not a, that's because it's, it's not a question of whether God will bring healing and restoration, but when. It, it may not be today or tomorrow or even during this life now, but it will be 
when Christ returns. One pastor said this, the good news of Christ is not primarily that Jesus will heal of all your sicknesses right now, but that Jesus will forgive you of all of your sins forever. And may God in his power help us to continue to believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks because you are a God of power. You are a powerful God. You are a God who works in and through us to, to make your will known, to accomplish your plan of salvation. We pray that we would continue to believe in all that you're able to do, all that you are doing, that you would strengthen our faith in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.